Among you is wise and understanding. By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good works, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. This is the word of the Lord. Man, thank you, Caleb. Appreciate that reading. Um, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, I know he talked about you can look on the screens, and that is true. But if you have your Bibles or a phone, I'm going to ask you to go to James 3 right now, and we're going to be in James in some other verses that may not be on the screen. So I want to give you a heads up on that and some things as we talk through that process. Um, like Ryan said, we're in the middle of a summer of wisdom, and I, I, it's been fun to prepare, uh, to kind of think through and process. Each of us got to pick our own text. And so I picked James chapter three. And so that's where we're gonna land today as we, as we walk through some of that. If you're like me at all, when you think of wisdom, the picture in your mind is the face of a person. Um, and so for me, as I think of wisdom, I think of people that are wise. And I, that may be very true for you as well. And so uh, many folks come to mind for me, you know, my dad. Uh, was, a, was a person I thought of as wise. My father-in-law, as I got to know him um, and feared him, <laughs> wisely feared him, um, I, I, I thought of him as wise. Uh, I, think of, I think of people in this church, uh, uh, professors from college, elders that have been here as, as elders over the years uh, are people that come to mind when I think of this idea of wisdom. Um, I saw wisdom as something we looked for in people and then worked hard to emulate them. What I need to think back and reflect on is I don't know how much I knew about wisdom when I was 10 years old. You know what I'm saying? That's when I gave my life to Jesus. And, and I grew up in a preacher's home, and so I sat in church my whole life uh, as a part of the DNA of how I lived. And, and so all the Bible stories from kids' church to Sunday school class to listening to my dad preach or other people preach, I, I do know that I gained some thoughts about wisdom. I don't know if it came from Proverbs. I think it is, but it, it's this idea that if you have gray hair, that equals wisdom, right? Anybody thinking with me on that? Come on. How many think that's true? Come on. At least partly true. Uh, nobody bald raised their hand, so I don't know what's going on here. Um, but I, I think I, I thought about that, you know, and then I, I got older and I, I found some people that had gray hair and I, I don't know if that's true all the time, that wisdom is always in the high of those with gray hair, although Proverbs does speak to that. Uh, and then what is interesting, the people that I thought were wise, especially those that I had a relationship with, like professors and elders and a father-in-law and a dad, is that the closer I got to them, the more I realized Okay, they're wise, but there are times in their lives when uh, in me watching them that I realized that they had flaws, that they were indeed broken and they weren't perfect and they often did unwise things. I can't think of anybody that I've, wow, I want to look up to that person. I want to, I want to discern some things from them. I want to follow that person and then only to find out that they weren't perfect. They had flaws. They made mistakes. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, 
uh, is, is a really cool verse. Um, it says this, pay careful attention then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So it's in Ephesians chapter five, verses 15 through 17. But people as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand the will of the Lord. Andy Stanley is a preacher down in, in Georgia and he wrote a book, well, it's been a while, uh, a, a book he wrote uh, several years ago called The Best Question Ever. Some of you might remember this book. It, it was a fun book to read. Andy Stanley writes and preaches very practically uh, in that kind of response. And so it's, it's kind of a easy for me to go to and, and, and read his stuff on based on this text. What is the best question ever? And his, here was his answer to that. The best question ever is what is the wise thing to do? And so he posed that question through various scenarios in how to phrase that question. So these were the three that he, were the premise of his book. He says, in light of your past experiences, what is the wise thing to do? Hmm. In, in, in light of your past experiences, what is the wise thing to do? In light of your current circumstances, where you find yourself now, what is the wise thing to do? And then finally, in his book, in light of your future hopes and your dreams, what is the wise thing to do? And, and so, I love the book, and so when you love a book and you're a pastor, then you teach that book as a life group leader, right? And you buy the video and you spend six weeks talking with the life group, you know, let's deal with this, what's the best question ever? And then you also, if you're a Sunday school teacher, you take that book and you teach it for six weeks in a Sunday school class on what's the wise thing to do. And, and I remember as a younger man walking through that book and finding some really practical application to those questions. And he began to take in the book, he, he dealt with some things like, how to spend money. In light of your past experiences, meaning how good are you with money, what's the wise thing to do now as you have the money that God has given you? In light of your time, uh, in, in light of your past experiences, in light of your current circumstances, what's the best usage of your time? What's the wise thing to do? And then in light of your future, where you're heading. And I found that book very practical. And, and, and honestly, very helpful. Um, but is that what it means to be wise? And I pondered that in the last several years. It's good stuff. It's, it's the scripture. It's Ephesians 5. It's Paul preaching to a church about wisdom. But it can't be just that, right? It can't just be about making better choices with my time and my money, Right? It can't just be about preparing for the future like retirement. It can't be just those things. And I think this is why James 3 is, is a favorite section of mine because I think James 3 gives us a contrast between two kinds of wisdom, godly wisdom and what he calls wisdom from the earth, worldly wisdom. So we've been remodeling our house, and some of you know that because I volunteered you to come over and help me tear it up. But we've been, volunteering, or we've been remodeling our house, and this is kind of funny to some of you out there who know me real well, like I'm looking at paint colors right now. I am not the guy who remodeled my house, just giving you a heads up. I hired a guy. But with my wife's great wisdom and my uh, sense of not wanting to spend a whole lot of money, uh, we got somebody that would build our our, our redo our kitchen that has the ability to do that, but also would allow us 
to look at how much it's gonna cost and say, can we help save on some of that? Like, can we tear out our kitchen stuff ourselves? Which I've seen it on TV, it looks really fun. <laughs> Honestly, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to do that. And so some of you had the privilege to come over to my house and help me do that. I appreciate that. Uh, and so we did. We tore it out, and that saved us some money. One of the other things they wanted us to save money on, our opportunity to save money, my wife is inquiring, she says, do you mind if I paint? And our construction guy says, sure, I hate painting. So my wife loves to paint. Many of you know that. And so she volunteered us to be painting uh, of our house. And so that's what we did. We painted the whole inside of the house, the walls, the trim, doors, replaced doors and painted new doors, the ceiling, right? Um, and, and let me qualify that answer. So like when we talk about that we painted the house, I, I need to clarify my wife painted the house. Did I make that clear? I didn't really paint a whole lot. I did paint some, but not compared to, my back was not sore, just put it that way. And, and what, I, what I had to paint. But you know, in, in, in part of painting, you have to select a color, right? And so you've been to Lowe's or some of those places, right? You get these painting swatches and you pick a color and it was pretty easy. My wife didn't really ask me about that. I, I, I want it white, surprise, surprise. And so she picked white. I thought, okay, good, we're done. Done with that, put that up. But if you've ever done a do-it-yourself thing and you're doing something with paint, um, there's like a zillion colors of white, right? Different shades of white. And here's just some of them. I mean, I'm sure I'm just scratching the surface. I guarantee you, I'm gonna read this list of white color options and you're gonna have, you're gonna say, but we painted it eggshell, right? So there's, there's extra white. Okay, so it's not white enough, it's gonna be extra. There's pure white. There is snowboard white. There is toque white, there's downy, there's marshmallow, there's ibis white, there's antique white, there is dove, there is creamy, there's ivory lace, there's white duck. I just thought, oh, that's fun. Okay, we don't want it shiny. I just don't want it shiny. And she picked, I don't even know what color she picked, but we got a white on the wall. The reason for that story is that I think when we talk about wisdom a little bit, that we think of the wisdom that we float in and we swim in here in the world, that it's so hard to determine what is, what is like godly wisdom and what is worldly wisdom. And, uh, and I think sometimes, if we're honest, that most of the time, what we swim in is a wisdom from the world. And again, I think James 3 is going to give some clarity to that. So put on your seatbelt, because I don't know if you're going to like it. Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, says it this way. I think this is an interesting, he gives us this, this list, litany list of vices. And he says, but know this. Hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then this part, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. That whole idea of holding on to the form of godliness, actually, Jim brought it up in our staff meeting Monday and it's kind of wrecked my week because I think it is real vivid and it 
illustrates the point that a lot of times the wisdom we search out for seems to be godly, seems to be like a kind of God's wisdom that is available for us, but it denies its power. It's a bit troubling. You see, sometimes godliness will sound like and even look like wisdom, but might not be good godly wisdom at all. And I think James chapter three gives us a clear understanding and a clear criteria to navigate the difference between the two. As we jump into chapter three, before we get there, I just wanna give you a little bit of immediate context, meaning James chapter three. He talks about the tongue and taming the tongue. We're familiar with that section of scripture. But the reason he's talking about that section of scripture is, is because he is dealing with teachers in that scenario who have been teaching, representing God to people in the church and in the new church that was beginning. And, and in that teaching, some people uh, had used their teaching to create a platform for themselves, to, play, to create a group of people that followed said people. And he was seeing that, James, uh, as a preacher himself, was seeing that, and he was speaking a warning to the people in the church, primarily teachers. He says in verse nine and 10 of chapter three, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessings and cursings come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. So that's the backdrop. And then he lands us in verse 13, so follow along on the screens or, or with your Bibles. It says this, verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he sh should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. I wanna park there for a little bit and, and talk about that first statement. Who among you is wise and understanding? I think it's very interesting that when we talk about wisdom and we look at wisdom in the scriptures, that a lot of times the word wisdom is partnered with words like understanding. Can I give you a few examples? in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter one. This is the setting of Moses who is leading the people out of the wilderness in the process of doing that. God has blessed what he had promised Abraham, their father back in the day, that you're gonna be a great nation. So now Israel, which was hardly anybody, became as, as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And now <coughs> Moses is leading these people through a wilderness situation. And he's realizing the weight of what it is to lead this many people. And so he makes this statement in Deuteronomy chapter one, verse 13, realizing he couldn't lead Israel now since God had increased their numbers, he did this. He appointed wise, understanding, and respected leaders, men to be leaders. Later in Deuteronomy chapter four, he reminds the whole body of Israelites to do this. Carefully follow God's instructions, his ordinances, and that will show you wisdom and understanding. Again, the words are brought together. Job chapter 28, uh, if you were reading through the book of Job, it, there's this whole chapter that has a, a, a title which helps us get to it. it. talks about the wisdom of God and he, he begins to elaborate on the wisdom of God. And at the end of chapter 28, verse 28, he says it this way. The fear of God, that is wisdom. Remember Jim talking about that a couple of weeks ago. And to turn from evil is understanding. I think it's fair to say that understanding, discernment, insight coincide or synonymous with wisdom. There seems to be something going on that this thing called wisdom is always included to another aspect, this idea of knowledge. But not just knowledge, like, but an understanding and an insight to knowledge that somehow gets us to wisdom. 
You see, our conduct with gentleness, as he says in verse 13, is a result of one who has wisdom. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil kind of practice. A clear vision and a vice list for worldly wisdom is given to us. Like, oh, so there is different kinds of wisdom. He goes, yeah, there is. And it becomes a little scary. He describes it that wisdom from above looks like this. It looks like envy and it looks like selfish ambition. And I went, oh, but isn't that truly our wisdom? I mean, if I'm honest, isn't that where I have dug some ground and put some footings in, right, in wisdom in my life? Like being ambitious, having goals, setting dreams in front of you, right? Um, Isn't that kind of wisdom, sort of, kind of? God goes, yeah, it's wisdom, all right. It's called worldly wisdom. Let me define ambition for you. I think this is interesting. It's meaning this idea to eagerly be desirous of attaining, desirous of attaining success, power, and wealth. <laughs> but that's a good thing, right? Like, it's good to work hard and to make a living and make a good living so that you can retire well. Isn't that a good thing, right? Mr. 38 days or whatever it is, right? Isn't that a good thing? It's 28 days, probably closer to 28. Um, in that kind of situation, is, isn't, that, isn't that ambition? Isn't that a good ambition? Isn't this idea of success? Isn't like, like winning state, isn't, like, isn't a good ambition, right? Come on, guys, right? We want to do that. Well, we did that, so never mind. Okay, sorry. Some of those, right? I mean, I think of the ambition and the things that we want um, and we search after. He says, be careful of that. Envy and ambition. And I know he adds the words like selfish ambition to the text, right? Uh, a bitter envy. But I have to wonder, is, is there like a good envy and a good ambition? And we can have a conversation about that. But the more I read it, the more I wonder is, I don't know if we can say that. Hmm. You can start throwing rocks if you like, but. I'm going to say that I don't know if we need to add selfish to that or anything to envy that ever makes envy a good thing. You know, but I think of how we walk and how we swim in the pool of wisdom today. And when I'm saying we, I mean me here, right? That I think of the things that I'm ambitious for. I desire for things and, and I envy of people who have things that I don't have. And God is reminding his people He's reminding us to be careful because that stems from a heart of a wisdom that is not from God, but it's a wisdom from the world. I think that maybe most of the wisdom that we're accustomed to and we work for is envious and it's from an ambitious heart. And the reason I know why is because where does it take us? What's the end goal with that, right? When we start having a zeal, Right? That's a better word. That's a more of a Christian word, right? Godly zeal, that sounds better. Oh, I have a, I'm zealous for God. Okay, good. Then good, right? I'm not mocking that. 
I just think that sometimes we are so zealous for things that the end result is self-interest. It's ambitious. It's out of envy. It's worldly. It gets harder because in verse 15, he says things like such wisdom. Okay, he calls it wisdom, by the way, which is really interesting. He does call it wisdom, but he says, you know what? Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is these things. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. Okay, come on, hold your horses here. I mean, it's not demonic. I mean, and you know, I think there are times when we're supposed to be unspiritual. It's like, okay, I probably shouldn't get into that. But I think of those scenarios and I I wonder, you see, here's what he's getting at. It doesn't come from heaven, it's earthly. Earthly wisdom is not in concert with God, right? It's unspiritual, okay? We can figure that one out. It's not spiritual. It's not of the spirit. The highest cause in an unspiritual wisdom, the highest point that we can ever arrive in is personal status, accolades, and prestige. That's all we can get if we don't go and walk in the spirit and we desire the wisdom that the spirit can bring. Later in in the next verse, it says, it also leads to disorder. I just think of the idea of chaos, and I think of the world in which we live, right? It's the simple chaos of driving down Perkins Road, or it's the chaos that is contrived in the news, or the chaos that's, that's soundboarded on Facebook, or the chaos that our neighborhood watch program has, or whatever, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're upset about a lot of things in our world today. You know, we have this indignation that we like to call righteous, and, and I think through all of those things, and I think the only thing that is, is that when we as the church decide to entertain, we just add to a chaos. We add to a disorder. And that's what he describes of a worldly wisdom. And then he calls it demonic. demonic. Can't help but go to Matthew chapter 12 where God says these words. He says, he who is not for me is against me. And then it takes me to 1 John, right? Where it's just kind of these statements like, okay, you guys want to live in both worlds, right? Talking to me. We, we love to live in the world of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Like, yeah, I want to be successful, but, you know, praise to God. But I, I still want these things, and okay. And we're trying to all ma- navigate that and try to have a godly wisdom. And, and yet God says these statements like, Be careful because if you're not for me, you're not kind of for me. It's if you're not for me, then you're for against me, right? You know, how can the love of the Father be in you if you don't love your brother? That's what he says in 1 John, right? Surely we can think of someone that we really just gets on your nerves, right? I used to give my uh, mother-in-law a hard time because she has opinions. And so years ago, in Tiger Woods' heyday, and I'm a Tiger Woods fan, okay? Again, worldly choice there, but I am a Tiger Woods fan. And I just remember I could bring up Tiger Woods in, pass, <coughs> in passing, and she would just sit her on a tirade. And the reason why she didn't like Tiger Woods is because Nike had just signed a deal, if you remember this, like 95 million, which doesn't sound like anything. To, well, it sounds like a lot to me, but it sounds like nothing today. And I, she just couldn't believe that nobody's worth that. And so she hated Tiger Woods because of the money she got. And so I used to give her a hard time, especially when my nephews were around, you know, hey, Nana, did you see that Tiger Woods won the Masters? Oh, that Tiger Woods, you know, I can't believe he, 
You know, like it was his fault that they gave him money, right? And I used to play on that tactic. You know, I wonder if all we do is that when we respond from a worldly wisdom point of view that we just add chaos and we don't realize how demonic we are living in. And I think we need to hear the truth of that. The good news in verses 17 and 18, he gives us a wisdom from above. It's quite different. He says, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure and then peace loving, it's gentle it's compliant, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's unwavering without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. James outlined what he considers to be the most important results of heavenly wisdom with a virtue list. Sounds very familiar to me like Galatians 5, when God gives us the fruit of the spirit list. It seems like these things train together, and it tells us in this section, that first of all, that the wisdom of God is pure. This idea that it's pure because God is pure. It's pure because God's words are pure. There's a purity there because it mirrors the power of God. A person marked by purity partakes in the character of God, following after God with unmixed motives, and that's what he calls. If you want the wisdom from, from God, then you first of all need to seek him in the pureness of his word and his power. It goes on to say peace-loving. It's this idea of being considerate of others, right? I think of Philippians 2 where he talks about being considerate. He who considered others, people's needs more than myself, talking about Jesus, gave his life for that. So this idea of considerate, sometimes we think is like just being nice and letting people go in before I go in, and that's part of it. But the idea behind it really is a justice term. It's an idea of, of, of someone who has a ready to pomp this thing and say, I'm gonna determine guilty or not guilty, right? And the judge gets to make this kind of decision and consider it means this idea that I'm gonna remain true to the highest ideals. That no matter the circumstances of the situation, you know, what's the wise thing to do? Be considerate. To be peace-loving in the moment. Talks about the idea of gentleness and compliance, this idea of submissive uh, with sober judgment. Again, following the same kind of idea, willing to receive instruction and then respond in kind in that instruction. This idea of submissive under proper authority. Full of mercy, I love that one because mercy really is the action word of compassion. It's the, it's the idea that you hear of a need and you move forward to meet it. This is something I, I think I would brag about this church. Last week, and this happens all the time around here, you guys are amazing in this, is that we throw out a need. Last week, Amanda Butler shared a need about 146 and meeting the needs with uh, this portal that we have for DHS and working with foster children. And one of the things that we could provide was backpacks and some of these ideas. And so take a card and Amanda was bragging about, man, it's so awesome, all the cards were mostly taken. And then you go out there and you look at all these backpacks. You guys are great. And I think we're great at that. We, we see a need and we can move towards uh, mercy in that moment. I think of our daily bread and, and uh, Rachel's leadership in that and the, the opportunity for our church to come along and serve that. Another opportunity to be not just compassionate, but to show mercy because God has shown mercy to us. Uh, and it bears these good fruits. You know, I, I think true religion is evidenced by our acts of kindness because James says that in James chapter one. I think it's a verse that just sits there and you go, wow, that's kind of out of nowhere. 
But the context of James tells us, he says, you know what true religion is? Is meeting the needs of widows and orphans, right? In their distress. That's what it means to be merciful. That's what true religion looks like, coming from the wisdom from above to care for those kinds of needs. And then finally, it's unwavering without pretense. It's the opposite of being double-minded or wishy-washy. It's the singularity of purpose in God. And our text ends with all these virtues, vir- excuse me, virtues being sown in peace. Again, the word peace comes up. And I didn't want to just leave peace there because I think peace is the most misunderstood word in our vocabulary in today's sermon because I think we can confuse the idea of biblical peace as the absence of tension, right? Anybody that kind of a peace person? I don't want to cause any ruffling of feathers. And so we're just, you know, we're just going to stay out of the way and have opinions about it, but we're just going to stay out of the way of that situation. I don't think that's biblical peace. I think one of the most typical actions in our culture is to succumb uh, to the temptation of the path of least resistance, right? And the smallest chance of any kind of harm or confrontation. And then we offer the option of, well, we rationalize because the situation is. So we, nobody really wants to speak about it, so we're just gonna live with the elephant in the room and hopefully it goes away. I think most of us, if we're honest, we, we've kind of had that model of peace in our lives. Problem is, it's not the model from heaven, it's the model from the world. Peace at any price is not peace. That's not what peace is. It's appeasement. You know, Paul, in his letters to the churches, he says this, Paul speaks of demanding to protect the unity of the church in order to keep the peace in the church. Amen? Those are hard words, but they're words we need to hear. Peace, this wisdom, this gift of God is needed to help us achieve a sanctification, a maturing process in us that's connected to us being righteous. God has made us righteous, but then we're also called to do good works in righteousness to harvest as peacemakers. So with that, I have two thoughts as we kind of wind down our time here as I think of this text of scripture is that first of all, godly wisdom, I think the scriptures are teaching us, shows in us when we lean into the character of God. Godly wisdom shows itself in us when we lean into the character of God. Because when I see this virtue list in this section of scripture, I see our heavenly father. It is his character. He is those things. He is the perfect judge who's considerate. He is peace loving. He is compliant. He is gentle. He is full of mercy and good fruits. He is unwavering and without premise. James 1, 5, verse you probably know, says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to us generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to him. And I just love that. He, he, he gives to us generously. Knowing I chose this text about a month or five weeks ago, I've been asking for wisdom every day. Again, I hope it's channeled my thoughts, right? There's sometimes just no way of knowing, right? But God, I'm asking for your wisdom because he says, if you lack it, ask, which is us, by the way. Oh, I'm good on wisdom. You know, do you have any Diet Coke? No, you need some wisdom. 
and just been asking God, and I, I love it because the promise is, I will give it. Man, I, I've got plenty of it. You can only, it's not like you can only get two parts of it today. No, I'm gonna give it to you. Later in James, he says it this way, every good and perfect gift is above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, right? He's willing to give, and by the way, he always gives the perfect gift. It is always good. It is never not good. Do you trust in that? Are you willing to ask for that? Why can we trust it? Because it comes from the Father in heaven, the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So that's why we need to understand in godly wisdom, it's leaning into the character of an unchanging God. Right, amen? So we need to do that. James, in chapter one, he also says this statement, everyone should be quick to listen, (laughs) slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. You know, and he goes on and he tells these things. I, I think James is misunderstood. I, I know a lot of people will say things about the book of James and say, well, it's kind of like Proverbs. It's kind of like this mixed hodgepodge uh, section of scripture where you can just pull out verses and it kind of speaks to you and that's kind of how we use it. But I think James is writing with some themes and some correlation in mind. You know, he's talking about, and I, I believe the middle of it is, is this idea of what wisdom is and how do we live from wisdom. And so he addresses things like ask of it in the midst of talking about trials. He says, you know what? Ask, because I'm doing a work in you. Ask for wisdom, and as you go through trials, I'm building something in you. I'm, endu- I'm providing endurance in you, and so ask of those things. In addressing false teachers, he talks about how we speak, and be careful. Are we quicker to listen and slower to speak? That sounds very wisdom-like, doesn't it? And God is calling us to do that. He, he spends a lot of time talking about You know what, we shouldn't just be hearers of the word. We should be doers. Like, it's not like we just hear it and come away, go, man, that's great, that was good, man, that was good. Where are we eating? No, what should I change? What should alter in my life to become me a person who is searching after the wisdom of God and heaven and not settle for the wisdom of this age and this world? God is calling us to that. He he spends a whole section on this idea of faith and actions, right? And he talks about, you know, you, you say you have faith and you don't have works. Like, I, I, you can't do that. It doesn't work that way because your faith will be revealed by the fruit of the things that you do. You just can't have compassion. You, you need to have mercy and you need to follow it in those regards. And so as I, as I think of godly wisdom is us leaning into the character of God, I think also this godly wisdom that we choose to live from will determine how we respond. And so I say it this way, the wisdom we live by, the pool of wisdom we swim in, shows in how we respond to the wisdom of the world. I, 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 wanna, I have to go to Daniel. Uh, we've been saying that in our science school class and Daniel's my new favorite prophet. Um, it's really interesting because there's some, just some fun stories that you learn as a kid in Sunday school class. But, but I think some of the statements there are just very, very powerful. And, and I call them the responses to Daniel in his book. In, in chapter one, we see Daniel who's just been taken into exile as a teenager. So he's kind of an upper class kid. He's, he's part of the noble part of things. He's an athlete. He's very well fit. He and his buddies are carried off to Babylon 
in the engagement of exile and where there was going to be years of people from Israel being uh, taken into Babylon. <clears throat> and he was some of the first to go. And in chapter one, there's a scenario where uh, it tells us that Daniel in verse eight was determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So they brought him into exile. And the reason they took these, these good looking athletic teenagers is because they wanted to equip them to use them uh, because they've been educated and those kinds of things to re-educate them and to bring them in to use them in leadership roles underneath the king of Babylon. And so that's what they brought him. And one of the things they were gonna do was they, how they looked and what they ate mattered. And so they were really conscientious about those things. And Daniel said, you know what? What you want us to eat, it kind of goes against what I stand for as a follower of God. And so in verses 12 and 13, he says, please test your servants for 10 days, talking about him and his three friends. Let us just be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating. And so that's what happened. And later, at the end of 10 days, the people that were doing the testing, the, the people that were cooking the food, uh, recognized clearly that they looked a lot better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. The scriptures go on to tell us the reason why is because God made it so. And then it began to say, as teenagers, God began to give them wisdom and understanding. Chapter three, it's in response, uh, the four, it's not so much Daniel, but it's his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You know the story, the fiery furnace, right? But the story is, is amazing because there was a king who makes this huge statue to himself out of gold, 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. That's a lot of money. Look at me, look how awesome I am. And then he, he proclaimed that everybody need to bow to this idol. Well, there's a few people that chose not to do that. Some young guys. You know what? Ah, oh, is this really a big deal? <coughs> should, I, should I make a stand here or not? <coughs> I think they made a stand and this is the words that they said and I love it. Because I love their response as we think about how we respond in the wisdom of God. You see, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you, to, you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. I love that response. <coughs> I would call it a peaceable response, an irenic response, a response that comes from wisdom and understanding. Later in, chapter, in Daniel 6, there's a plot against wisdom. Daniel is now older. There's a new king. There's actually a new, it's not Babylon anymore. It's a whole other nation took over Babylon. They're still under subjection. Daniel finds himself probably in his 70s or 80s. Still a man of wisdom, living for God, and God had blessed him, and because of that blessing, he was put in a role of administration, and as a satrap, and he was, he was the guy over another 120 people that, that ran the nation underneath the king, and, and uh, I just can imagine, here's Daniel. Well, isn't that a wisdom move from the world, like created status? Like God has blessed you, and look at, look at what you get to do. You're in charge of everybody? I don't know if that's Daniel because we see it in his response, right? Well, there was some jealousy. There was some envy of some people with worldly wisdom. And because of their worldly wisdom and their envy decided that they had a plan to go talk to the king 
without Daniel being there and saying, hey, I think we need to make a rule. Same kind of rule that these people had. And the rule was this, that anybody who chooses to point their face and worship and seek out a God other than you, almighty king, then we should kill them all. Having their boss, having their cohort as the person in mind. And sure enough, Darius signed it. And they said, oh, by the way, we know this guy that does this. And I love Daniel's response. <laughs> it wasn't with words, it was with actions. Verse, chapter six, verse 10. He says, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house the windows in his upstairs room opened toward Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. It can be hard to find the differentiation between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. And I think it becomes hard because we desire the wisdom of the world. And so we'll swim in that pool and we'll justify our actions because it's just, it's where everybody else is. But God has called us to be and to respond differently. And our challenge is, would you lead in and lean into God and his character and trust that so that God can develop these qualities of a godly wisdom in you? And can you respond? And most of the time, very ironically, right? With great patience and peace. Caring about the world, but not caring less about what God has called me to do and be. As I was thinking through this text of wisdom, I think of the opposite, right? Proverbs talks about the fool and the wise. But I think of this time of communion, and I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and where it says this. He says, for the word and the words of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. I think later in that text, man, the end of chapter one in First Corinthians and the first part of chapter two, and he talks about the Holy Spirit. And it kind of goes back and forth between foolishness and wisdom and how it's so opposite than the world is. In verse 30, he says it this way. He says, God saying, it is from God, excuse me, Paul saying, it is from God that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. I pray that we would remember the wisdom of God and his son, Jesus Christ. I know if someone walked in, has no idea what we're doing, going, well, that looks kind of crazy, kind of silly kind of foolish and yet the Bible teaches us that we celebrate with great peace and hope and love unwaveringly in what God has provided when he gave his son whose body was broken for us let's eat and his blood was spilled out so that we might be a part of the wisdom of God amen We invite you.